Welcome, everybody, to episode number 24 of the Average Jake Firefighter Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Owens, from the Average Jake Firefighter Blog. Not having been able to find any work on fire engines in the English language, I have been led to publish the following remarks in the hope of inducing others to give farther information on the subject. For the style of the work, I make no apology. And as I presume no one will read it except for the purpose of gaining information, my aim will be obtained if I shall have succeeded in imparting it or in directing the public attention to the advantage which may be derived from the systematic training of firemen. That's a quick excerpt from James Braidwood in his manuscript or book, The Training of Firemen and the Method of Proceeding in Cases of Fire. Uh, I actually got a classic reprint of two of his works uh, on the construction of fire engines and apparatus and, of course, the previously mentioned The Training of Firemen and the Method of Proceeding in Cases of Fire. And I love that passage because it's exactly... It's exactly kind of how I feel about the podcast. It's exactly how I feel about what's going on in the fire service today. It's, you know, all these things, and we're we're in a great place in the fire service where we just have just loads of information at our fingertips. Um, I mean, I remember even, even, you know, I got into the fire service when I was 15 years old, right around 1996, 97, and I remember like, having to beg people for VHS copies of fires. Like there was no YouTube. I couldn't go just look at fires, you know, every day like we can now. Uh, you know, you would go to conference or people had like old uh, VHS tapes of Brothers in Battle or fires from Los Angeles. Uh, you know, just anything around old VHS tapes. We would even watch VHS tapes of fires that like the volunteer fire department I had went to went on. And that was just like, you know, it was so hard to get information. You were reading books at your disposal and there really wasn't even that many books. Like it was just, it was just, you were starved for information. You, you would read Firehouse Magazine or maybe Fire Engineering or Fire Rescue or, and and you'd like, like you would keep those copies. I remember for decades, uh, I kept every copy of Fire Engineering and Firehouse I had, uh, just because I was like, I can't let this information go. And now it's just, it's such, we're getting, you know, reproducted works of James Braidwood, who, I mean, he published this stuff initially, I mean, very, very early on, uh, I mean, like horse and, horse and wagon carts, like bucket brigade type stuff, 1830s is what we're talking about when he wrote some of these things, so I think that is just so awesome, but when we have so much information, some of it can get blurred, and that's where we end up today. And I want this podcast to be a medium of information sharing. And normally the people who listen to it are people who just are seeking fire service education. And I always have tried to put my spin on everything or just my perspective because I feel that, and this is a this is a different perspective than everyone out there because I feel that everyone has some value to be to be brought to the discussion. Even if you are from the East Podunk Fire Department, you might know something that I don't know. Now, does that mean that you should be talking about, I don't know, how to force a fox lock or how to force a, you know, a commercial storefront? Probably not because you probably don't have those. Uh, Pete Lamb talked about it in his podcast this week on staying in your lane, that he's not a high-rise guy or anything, and I think that's truly important, but I don't want that guy from East Podunk Fire Department to think that he doesn't have a place at the table because I don't believe that. I believe that everybody's got a piece of the table. Everybody has uh, something to offer. You may not know what that is until you go talk to them. But if you just dismiss them from because of the name of the fire department that they come from or because they only go to five fires a year, uh, maybe those five fires a year were harder than your hundred fires. Your hundred fires might have been you just walked in the front door, stretched the line to the left, squirted the water with a half bale and put the fire out. That guy might have had five fires, but it might have been the fires of his life. So I don't think we should dismiss people but we want to make sure that every I want to make sure that everyone's got a place at the table, but we do have to make sure that we're staying in our lane. And so I don't apologize for the work that I do. Uh, 
But my mission is if it helps one person, and that's always been my mission ever since I started doing the blog, teaching at conferences, writing articles, doing this podcast, that if it helps one person, then I'm doing my job and I'm doing what I set out to do. So I think that's where we need to be when we continue on these paths. There's so many people out there. There's so many training companies and so many conferences and so many things. It's, it's, it's like, you know, and again, I don't think it's market saturation, but it can be confusing. There's a lot going on. Like, which one do I go to? Which one do I not go to? Uh, you know, who do I listen to? Um, you know, and, and, and I don't really have the answer for that, but my, my opinion or my suggestion is to take a little bit from everybody. Uh, take a little bit from everybody, you know, listen to the guy from East Podunk, but also listen to the guy from DC or from FDNY or listen to the guy, uh, listen to a guy from a suburban fire department just outside the city of Richmond, uh, or, and listen to the guy from the city of Richmond. You know, they may have contrasting styles, but they both might work and they might work for you. They might work for you. And that's where it's important because I believe that everybody has a place at the table and has something to offer. Uh, you know, again, I have had my world blown having now been assigned to a rural water company that I'm listening to guys that have volunteered out in the country for their entire life that work for us that are schooling me on the best ways to draft and the best ways to move water and the best ways to do business. And it's awesome. But I would have dismissed those guys five or six years ago because like, well, they're at a slow station for a reason. Now, they're not at a slow station for a reason. They like doing what they do and they're good at what they do. And so we should listen to them. Um, with that being said, the topic of this week is going to be on some more thoughts on search. There's been a lot of controversy in the Twitter sphere uh, with the Jones and Bartlett stuff. We'll get into that. Um, but before we get into the topic on just some more thoughts on search, uh, because it's kind of following up on that engine search, I just want to have a, sh- a huge shout out to the people who support me in this endeavor. Uh, you guys do not go unnoticed. First would be Taylor's Tins. Taylor's Tins makes metal helmet fronts for your uh, for your helmets. Those things are awesome. I wear one every day. It's been in fires, extrications. I've dropped it. Uh, the other day, just the other day, riding up on the battalion car, opened my door, my helmet plopped down, landed right on the Taylor's Ten. It didn't even look like it hit the pavement. Those things are tough. They're going to last you forever. You're going to want one on every helmet that you have. So go to taylorstens.com and get you a Taylor's Ten. Stop burning up those leathers. Start wearing Taylor's Tens. The other is uh, Vanguard Safety Wear. Vanguard Safety Wear, the makers of the MK1 Fire Gloves. Those gloves are made for work. I wear them every day. Have, again, been in fires, been in live burns, extrications, rolling hose, flowing water. They get better every time. They are literally the best fire glove I've ever worn. Make sure you go to VanguardSafetyWear.com and get you a pair of MK1 Fire Gloves. Also, got to have a huge shout out to all the people who are listening, all the people who continue to support me, Pete Lamb, Steve Green, Ryan Pennington, uh, Andy Starnes, John Dixon, Chris Baker, John Haywick, Sean Egan, uh, so, so many people that I, I can't name them all because I, I, I constantly, every time I try to do this, I forget somebody. Uh, do The Do Work Podcast, Cody and Steven, all these guys that just continue to support the mission that I'm going with this podcast and where I'm trying to go with it. And uh, just thank you guys so much. I'm inspired by you. I'm inspired by, you know, the reason I started this podcast is because I was inspired by people like Ryan and like Pete Lamb uh, and Steve Green. Go listen to their stuff. It's great. Uh, I like that you guys listen to the to my podcast, but there's other stuff out there. There's other perspectives out there. Pick the one that works well for you. And you're going to have a whole lot more enriching experience when you're listening to these podcasts. So thanks everybody who listens every every time I put one of these out. And thanks everyone who I've mentioned before for continuing to support the podcast and continuing on uh, with this mission that I've set, set forth of just trying to bring a different perspective to the fire service. So with that being said, we're going to move on to some more thoughts on search and uh, some of the things from some other authors and some of my thoughts. Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back. Uh, just kind of expanding a little bit on our talk about search. Uh, last episode was about engine company search. 
where I detailed kind of how I do business as an engine company officer, stretching a line on the seat of the fire, searching back from the seat of the fire, and just some different options that you have uh, for different occupancy types, tri-level, split levels, things of that nature, and just kind of the basic procedure and why I do what I do and why when I have to implement that tactic of the, you know, the reasons that I do it. So the other day on the Twitter sphere, uh, I don't even remember who the original tweet was from, but it was a screenshot of the Jones and Bartlett latest edition when it was talking about VES. And a lot of people immediately get wrapped around the axle when you talk about VES because a lot of the publications now have switched it to VEIS. So vent, enter, isolate, and then search. And a lot of people get wrapped around the axle about it because they're like, well, isolate is implied, so on and so forth. Uh, they don't think that you need to put every step in. Well, so in the latest edition of the Jones and Bartlett, uh, they're, they're now using O-V-E-I-S or oriented vent, enter, isolate, search. And the passage kind of reads, uh, the passage reads as this, the original vent, enter, search method of conducting a primary search was developed for situations in which there is a porch located in front of a bedroom window and a person in the bedroom needs to be rescued. This method of primary search is meant to be used in extreme situations in which there is a shortage of personnel. One firefighter can quickly place a ladder to the porch roof, quickly open or break the bedroom window, enter the bedroom, perform a quick search of the room and exit back onto the porch roof. If it is possible, to access a second bedroom from the same porch, this, this method allows for search to be conducted in two bedrooms in a short period of time. This evolution is very dangerous for several reasons. However, opening a bedroom window is a type of ventilation which adds oxygen to the fire, contributing to a flashover or directing the hot fire gases toward the open window. Additionally, the VES method violates the two-in-two-out rule and because it is often done before any hose line is in place, the fire may expand rapidly. VES is a very dangerous method and should not be used. A safer modification of VES is the Oriented Vent Enter Isolate Search, or OVEIS. So that got a lot of people torqued up because saying that VES should not be used. It should be this O-V-E-I-S model or, you know, and, and so I'm going to uh, talk about it from a couple different perspectives. The first perspective that I have is I don't care what you call it. Okay. Why, you know, some people talk about how, you know, jargon, words, whatever, things are called different things all over the country. Okay, I've talked about this story before when I went off to college and I was training with guys all over the country and someone asked me to go get a pencil ladder. I had no idea what that was. Zero idea what that was. Where I come from, we call a pencil ladder an attic ladder. He thought I was stupid. I thought he was stupid. So things are called different things all over the country. Second, you know, so, so don't get wrapped around that, in my opinion. Like, you know, we have different jargons that work for different things. Uh, different fire departments call things different things. I don't think we need a common jargon because my, my area, you know, a lot of people are advocating for that. You know, trades have common language and common jargon. Well, trades, a welder in Washington is a welder in Virginia. That can work. A firefighter in Virginia is not a firefighter in Washington. Okay, because it's different areas. We do different things. Even though some places are similar, we do different things. In my fire department, we call things different than they do the fire department next door because it's unique to us. And I think that's good. That builds, in my opinion, that helps us work well together inside of our own fire department. Plus, it's our way of doing things. It builds pride tradition in our department. For example, we don't call... We don't call we don't use the term like first do or or anything. We call it the district. And like when you're in recruit school, they say like, yeah, when you guys get out to the district or when you're in the district, that's what we call it. We call the, the Henrico County, the fire service areas, we call it the district. Hey, that's your district. That's number six's district. 
We, that's that's an our term thing. It means the same thing as first due or response area, whatever you call it, box area, whatever you call it. We call it the district. It's just a Henrico fire thing. So, you know, when you're in recruit school or when you're like, yeah, man, you're going out to the district or guys that are in the office will always say like, man, I can't wait to get back out to the district. You know, that's just what we call it. So, you know, don't get wrapped around the axle about that. Every fire department's different. You know, we call our dispatcher radio. That winds people up sometimes, you know, just like Farva, don't call me radio unit 91, you know, or whatever. Like that winds people up like other places where I volunteered at uh, in Hanover. They say their dispatcher, they say Hanover, like like engine seven to Hanover. Well, working in Henrico, I got in the habit of saying radio and man, people would get wound up about that. Like, it's like, okay, you know, like just get wound up about it. And and so it's like, whatever, you know, that's fine. You can call it whatever you want to call it. It's, it's no big deal. So don't get wrapped around the axle about that. Two, acronyms. Why do we care if people like acronyms? I, it, it baffles me when someone's like, hey, uh, so Recio, and they're like, oh, that's so stupid. You shouldn't need an acronym to remember rescue exposures, blah, 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 blah. Who cares if they need that? That's what they're designed for. They're memory aids. I don't care what you use to remember rescue exposures, confinement, uh, extinguishment, overhaul. I don't care. I don't care what you use to remember that. If remembering an acronym or a memory aid or a mnemonic or whatever helps you do your job at two in the morning, rock and roll, man. If you don't need it, that's okay too. But geez, why do we get so wrapped around the axle about people using acronyms? Oh, another acronym, another acronym. Who cares? Who cares if it's V-E-S or V-E-I-S or O-V-E-I-S? Who gives a crap? Who cares what they call it? Who cares what they call it as long as everybody on your job knows what it means? If you use V-E-S... And that guy knows, if you say, hey, we're going to VES that window, and that guy knows that he's going to throw the ladder, vent the window, go to the door, isolate the door, search the room, and come back out, who cares if you call it VES? Or who cares if you call it VEIS? Or who cares if you call it OVEIS? Who cares? That kind of crap is what's dividing the fire service more than almost any other thing. We get so wrapped up and what people are saying and people are calling things. Man, if VES, the term VES works in your department, rock and roll, man. Awesome. Especially if everybody knows what it means. If everybody knows what VES means on your job, then rock and roll. You're doing a great job. Because it all boils down to the performance at the end of it. I don't care what you call I don't care if you call it a 42 blue. If everybody on your job knows it's called a 42 blue, then rock and roll. We had a battalion chief uh, who's retired now in, in the east end of the county who his rural water supply plan, he had two rural water supply plans. He had a basic nurse operation and if it was, and he had what he called the Omaha play. He was paid Manning guy. He had what he called the Omaha. And Omaha essentially was daisy chaining units together because we didn't think we would need to do a nurse or a tanker drop operation. So he would just say on the radio, battalion two to all units, we're running Omaha for this fire. You, if you were listening, you don't know what that means, but we all know what it means. So is that wrong that he called that Omaha? No, it's not wrong. We know what it means. He trained us to know what that means. Everybody in the whole fire department knew when, when, uh, when the chief said Omaha, everybody knew their job. So why do you care that we called it Omaha? Why do you care? You shouldn't care. That's the reason. But there's somebody who I'm sure after this episode publishes will be like, what the heck is this guy talking about when he's calling an Omaha? Somebody will tweet about it. Go ahead. You, at least if you're going to tweet about it, at least tag me in it. Okay, At least tag me in it so that I can see that you did it. Okay, It doesn't matter. Different fire departments say different things. They mean different things. What matters is that your people are trained for the job. And your people are trained to do what you need to do. The way that I do engine search, I train my people that way. We talk about it. We talk about it on the whiteboard, the procedure, and then we go to the drill school and we do it. And we do the procedure. So they know when I say we're going to have to do an engine search, they know what that means. 
I don't have a fancy acronym for it, and that's fine. But if you do, if you want to create an acronym to make sure that everybody knows the different functions of your engine search, rock and roll. As long as they can do the job and it helps them do the job, then I'm all for it. Stop hating on this stuff and just start worrying about the end performance of it. And again, if you need an acronym to help you at 2 a.m., I'm all for it. I don't care what you need as long as the end result is what I need. If Recio or Slicers or O-V-E-I-S helps you do that job and that person comes out that window, I don't care what you called it. I don't care. It is end results that matter in this job. End results matter. If O-V-E-I-S, if you, do, if you call it O-V-E-I-S, but you can't do it, then that's a problem. That's the problem we got to fix. And that doesn't happen on the Twitter sphere, the blogosphere, the, the podcastosphere, the conferencesphere. It happens on the drill ground, ground with sweat equity. That's where it happens. All right, so I got a little bit on a soapbox about that, but it really does piss me off when I see people talking about that. It really does. It gets me wrapped around the axle. Maybe I'm a hypocrite for that, but it it, it is what it is. So when you talk about that original, back to that original Jones and Bartlett post, when you talk about that original definition of VES, some guys got like a little bit wrapped around the axle about that, but that's actually true. Uh, That is the original, like what the original intent of VES was. It was meant for a single firefighter to be able to access a porch roof and access multiple rooms or bedrooms. We continued to develop it, and I think appropriately, we continued to develop it to fit our needs in other occupancy types, apartment buildings, or just regular other bedrooms that were not serviced by a porch roof. Uh, I went to FDIC, you know, I've gone to FDIC several times, but took a, took a FDIC search class from Mike Nasta, and we ves an apartment building, and the, the mission was VES the room, come down, throw the ladder to the next window, VES that next room. That's how we did it. Get in there, go across the thing, close the door, search that room. Nobody's in that room. We didn't even check the hallway. We didn't even check the hallway. Who cares? We're going to go VES this next bedroom because we know it's a bedroom. So boom. And that's, how I, that's, that's, part of the, that's one of the initial ways that I was trained, and I think appropriately. And I think appropriately. Um, so you get back to that thing. Like I so said, we've adapted that for our needs and our uses. Uh, one of the, I guess one of the other things is that when people talk about it's very dangerous. Yes, it is very dangerous. I don't, you know, it, it talks about VES is very dangerous. Method should not be used because they're talking about the original definition there. And it should be O-V-E-I-S instead. Um, what isn't dangerous anymore in this job? I mean, let's, let's break it down and think about it. What isn't dangerous? I mean, we're going into burning buildings with toxic smoke, high heat, things that burn faster than they used to, uh, in all sorts of things trying to cause us cancer, people in there, our gear, there's even studies on our gear is causing us cancer, I mean, the, the apparatus is designed to kill us. Uh, all the things that they're making our stuff out of is designed to kill us. I mean, what's not dangerous about this job anymore? If you, and again, I'm not a cowboy. I've talked about this in the Risk of Our is our Business episode. I'm not a cowboy at all, okay? I'm not a cowboy. I'm not like out there with a death wish. Uh, I do believe in risk assessment. I believe in all of those things. But this job is dangerous, and we, uh, we are supposed to put ourselves in danger, okay? Again, not danger to where it's stupid, okay? Not suicide missions. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about we're supposed to put ourselves in danger. We have protective equipment and breathing apparatus and water. We're supposed to place ourselves in between the fire and the people, however that looks like, right? If sometimes we have to spray water outside first to get inside, that's what we do. If the inside area is able, if, if we're able to stretch a line first thing right through the door to place ourselves in between them on the front side, man, that's what we do. If we have to throw a ladder to that window to try to rescue somebody, that's what we do. That's dangerous. No, that's all dangerous. Everything about this job is dangerous. Even living in a firehouse today is dangerous because the vehicle exhaust will kill you. Drinking the water might kill you. Okay, so... 
It's it's the I can't I can't be in support of anything that it, we shouldn't do it just because it's dangerous. Okay, we're living in a in a fire service. We are living in a fire service that very a very small, very small minority has appropriate staffing. Very small. Most of the country is small city fire departments or rural urban volunteer or rural volunteer fire departments with two, three, maybe four people that turn out for a fire. They have got to be able to do this job. They've got to, they, they have the same expectation, right? Like they have the same expectation as us. They're supposed to put the fire out and save all the people. Okay. So some of the, so saying that we should only do this with the right amount of people, it's just, it's, it's, it doesn't compute to me right now. Again, we shouldn't take a suicide risk, but I have done a VES on a building by my, on a room by myself because I was the, I was the outside truck driver and there was, I was it. And they said there was somebody in there. So we threw a ladder. So I threw a ladder. I had my gear on. This is when I drove the ladder truck. I would always throw my gear on. And I, as I was getting out, uh, there was an air pack in a compartment, throw it on. And boom, they said there was somebody in this window. There could be somebody still in there. And I'm the only one outside. Smash. Climb in the window. Search the room. Come back out. There's no one there. I mean, that's, that's what we do. That's what we're supposed to do. And yeah, that might have violated it. Two in, two out, yada, yada, so on and so forth. But that's what we have to do. I mean, that's just like, there's nobody else to search that room right now. That's it. It's me. So am I supposed to just not do it? No, I don't believe that. And again, I tried to take safety precautions. You know, I tried to build in safety. I wore all my PPE. I made sure my air was good that morning. Uh, you know, I've trained, I've trained that way. I told the BC what I was doing so he was accountable for me. That's a big one. I didn't just freelance it over there. It was, hey, boss, someone said there's someone in that window, in that room. I'm going to go search it. I'm going to go search it through a ladder. He gave me the nod. Okay. What's, you know, I don't see the problem with that. I don't see the problem with that. But uh, so as, I've, as I do my research on search, and it's something that, especially in the last like couple years, uh, when I experienced that fire I talked about in the engine search episode, I, I, I've started reading a lot about search. And uh, one of the books that, I re- that I've read is Searching Smarter by Skip Coleman. And Skip has some interesting ideas on Veninor Search. And I'm going to read a couple of that. Uh, if, you, if you have the book, it's uh, chapter 8, it, page 61. Uh, Veninor, it's, it, the, the chapter is titled Vent, Enter, Search. And I think you're going to see, and again, anybody who doesn't know who Skip Coleman is, he's from Toledo, very busy urban fire department, gone to a lot of fires. Um, you know, so this guy has, he, he's got experience. Um, and so this is his thoughts on Veneter Search. And he starts off with, I was very torn about putting this chapter in the text. One reason is that I don't even know if I consider Vent Enter Search an actual form of search. In its original version, it is doubtlessly the most dangerous method of searching used in the fire service. Not only is it dangerous, it is against most safety standards, including OSHA. Departments that allow the search are literally hanging themselves out to be exposed to lawsuits and fines in the event of loss of life or serious injury to a firefighter performing these risky activities. He goes on to say, having said that, as a chief officer, I have assigned it to a crew in at least one instance in Toledo. At that moment, it was the difference between life and death for a civilian. I mean, that right there, you know, so again, even Skip Coleman with all of his experience and everything, and he feels very strongly that VES is not the way to do it, right? He thinks it's dangerous and it's a violation of safety protocols and all these things. Even with that said, he assigned people to do it because he knew it would save someone's life one time. So I think that speaks volumes. When there is such an opponent, and if you've ever read this entire book, Searching Smarter, he is adamantly against 
the original definition of VES, the sending one firefighter into a room, sending one firefighter into a room, having them isolate, search it, and bring the victim out. Like, he is vehemently against this procedure. If, and, it, and it's kind of like mirrored throughout the entire book uh, what, the pro, what he doesn't like. Um, you know, so with that being, when he feels that, when you feel that strongly about a topic, yet he still did it because he knew it would save someone's life. Knew he would save someone's life, he still did it. And so what he goes on to say, uh, Venner's search was developed by an East Coast Fire Department many years ago. The members of that department realized that more than 80% of the single-family homes in their city were two-story homes with a front porch. Of these homes, more than 80% had windows off the front porch that led directly into one or two of the bedrooms on the second floor. In the event of a nighttime fire with high likelihood that victims may be in one of the second floor bedrooms, they developed the procedure called Vent Enter Search. How the original VES works. VES is an evolution in which one firefighter, usually the driver, sets the pumps after the engine crew has pulled and stretched the initial attack line. This by itself is very dangerous. To have, a crew, to have an attack crew enter a building with a hose line and not keep the driver at the pumps. The driver then removes a roof ladder from the apparatus and ladders the front porch in the event of a water pump failure. The driver then proceeds with the following. Climbs the ladder to the front porch and opens or breaks, vents the window, leading to one of the bedrooms. Enters the room and immediately proceeds to the bedroom door to ensure that it is closed. This buys time for any advancing fire and also lessens the possibility that the attack crew will push heat and steam into that bedroom. Searches the bedroom for any victims and leaves out of the same window that was entered. If a second window is accessible from the porch roof, the driver would repeat this process in the adjoining bedroom. Both of these houses have multiple bedrooms off the front porch, and that's a picture that he's showing uh, off there. And he said, and that's it. As stated above, other departments have developed their procedures using the vent inner search name, but they allow it to be used in other applications, such as bedrooms not adjacent to the attached porches. Uh, I share that with you because I always feel that it's important to know like where where we've come from, right? Like uh, there's a reason military generals study civil war military tactics and revolutionary war uh, military tactics because it's important to know where you've come from to understand where you're going. But those same generals today wouldn't go into Afghanistan with muskets, okay? So it's important to know your history, but you got to modernize it a little bit. Uh, he goes on to say, too, the hazards of the original VES. VES is a dangerous evolution for several reasons. If it is conducted by the driver, then no one is watching the pumps for loss of water to the attack line while crews are inside. One firefighter is allowed to enter a burning structure alone. There are many firefighters advocating the safest fire scene possible who never recommend the use of a roof ladder as a climbing ladder. In my opinion, that never word should be avoided. It is true that a roof ladder has a smaller base and is not designed for climbing, but it is short, lightweight, and does, the, does work in this one firefighter application. It's still dangerous. The firefighter is allowed to enter the burning building in the face of an advancing hose line. This is generally not a good idea. Now, I don't necessarily agree with all of those things, right? Because uh, I was, and, and again, this is just some of the ways that I've done business in the past. I was trained... And again, this is the way that we do business, or the way that I do business on my engine company. And we were just kind of talking about this the other day, especially in a rural area where I'm at now. But even when I was in a more urban area in my county, uh, I was trained by one of my mentors that when we only have three people, an engine officer, a firefighter, and a driver, and that's on every suppression apparatus, we can't have any spectators. Everyone has to be a soldier on a three-person company, period. So we designed our apparatus so that we could get the pump operators away. 
we designed them to you know to where they have the pressure governors. They can stay in pressure mode. The the engine will allow it to never drop below the, whatever pressure it's set at, and then you can gate the gate the valves back on the lines. We have these big lights on the side that let the driver know he can look back from across a yard and see where his water level is. The engine will shut down before it cavitates. All these things that allow the driver to get away from the rig. Because in a lot of areas, especially, again, where I work now, we're waiting on help. We're running away from help. And if a ladder needs to be thrown and somebody needs, or somebody needs to be rescued, then that driver's got to do it. And that's also why I encourage the people that drive. And you see a lot of times, if you see a fire in Henrico, a lot of times you'll see drivers, engine and ladder company drivers, dressed out especially ladder and rescue company drivers because they know that they're the outside vent guys. So they're the guys that are going to the roof. They're the guys that are possibly doing VES, all of those things. Uh, in rural areas where we have to do fractional firefighting, the, the firefighter jumps off, drives the tanker to the call. The engine driver and engine officer uh, go in the engine. And then when we get there, we kind of pull up behind each other. The engine driver will then pump both apparatus. The firefighter and the officer will go stretch a line on the fire, but that still leaves the engine driver out there by himself for who knows how long. So if a ladder's needed, he's got to throw that ladder. There's no other option. Yeah, it's dangerous. It's probably not the best way to do business. It's not the best safety practice, but it's what it's real life. It's what we're faced with every day. So should we just not train that way? And should we not prepare for that worst situation? I don't think that's the best way to do business. Skip Coleman goes on to say in the Searching Safer book, or excuse me, Searching Smarter book, he talks about the only safe option, the oriented VES. And, uh, and, and I'm flipping to the front of the book real quick. I can't remember exactly the year he published this, so I'm kind of looking really fast. And this is published by Penwell Fire Engineering. Uh, this was published in 2011. So in 2011, somebody was already talking about the OVES uh, that, that the Jones and Bartlett book is putting out in 2019. So he goes on to talk about the oriented VES, or as he calls it, the only safe option. There is one option for conducting VES that provides for a safer operation. This involves combining the oriented search, as described in previous chapters, with VES. Staffing has become an issue across the United States. Even in departments where staffing was low to very low, buildings have gotten bigger and homes have become more complicated, larger, and constructed of cheaper materials. Many departments now conduct searches using two firefighters, and many of those departments pull up to working house fires with 10 or fewer firefighters. In those extreme and rare instances where rescue is imminent, especially at, at fires in the nighttime hours, VES provides a rapid method of searching bedrooms and residential occupancies. In order to safely conduct VES operations, I recommend the following. So this is usually for a two-story two home, so I'm only going to talk about this part. But he does de detail how to do it in like a single-story occupancy. Two-person crew proceeds to the bedroom area from the exterior of the building. A roof ladder or a ladder less than 28 feet can be used on two-story homes to reach the second floor or Division 2. If the home is an older traditional home with a front porch that is used to gain entry into the sleeping areas, in these dire times, a roof ladder can be used to access the front porch roof. You must remember that if a victim is located, the victim can be brought out to the roof and a ladder of significant size or tower ladder or bucket can be raised to remove the victim. A window to the bedroom should be opened or forced. A firefighter then enters the bedroom to locate the interior bedroom door and close it. The entire bedroom area is searched. While this is done, the other firefighter, the oriented officer, remains outside on the front porch performing the duties of the oriented person. In this way, no single firefighter is ever performing search entirely alone. If the only access to the bedrooms is in the rear or on the side of the home, then if time and staffing permits, a climbing ladder should be used to gain access to the Division two bedrooms from the exterior. The searcher would proceed first up the ladder, open or remove the window, and then enter as described above. The oriented member would climb the ladder and be positioned on the ladder at the window but remain outside. This process should continue until all the sleeping areas have been searched. Ideally, the fire will have been knocked down by then. 
So he talks a lot about that. And I'll be quite honest with you. I, I don't necessarily disagree with that method, but where I have issue with it is the fact that we don't always have that oriented person. I'm a big believer in oriented search, especially when we're doing searches in, in an occupancy. Like if we have the people, man, having a person with a thermal imaging camera that can stay at the door, keep that search and firefighter oriented, especially in residential searches, because most of the rooms are too small to stick two people in anyway. Two people are going to crowd that room. Um, being able to being able to have someone stand at the door with a with a tick, orient that firefighter and, and actually be able to direct them, man, I think that's money. And I think if you have that person, then having that oriented person at the top of the ladder doing that this, doing that same thing uh, for a VES is awesome as well. But the problem is that it takes people, and we're talking about a fire service where they're constantly we're constantly manpower challenged. Unless you work for some big fire department. As you work for some huge fire department that's having four and five and six guys assigned to trucks and you're bringing 30 engines to a, to a, a house fire. I mean, that's just not happening for us. So we have to do some of these things under dire conditions. And VES is one of them. Um, I mean, I've done it both ways. I've, done, I've never, I never called it O-V-E-I-S or O-V-E-S or whatever. We always just called it VES. But like I said in the beginning, we knew what VES meant. We knew what VES meant. And I've seen it done multiple ways. I've seen one guy jump in a window, and I've seen a guy stand on the porch roof uh, you know, while the guy jumped in the window. I've seen a guy stand on top of the ladder. I've seen one guy jump in the ladder. I've been that guy. I've been both of those guys. I've oriented someone from the porch roof. I've oriented someone from a ladder, and I've been alone. So I think you have to look at two while it is dangerous and you are definitely walking a thin line, how may, and, and again, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if, if you have ever looked at anything Bill Carey has done on the actual true line of duty deaths, I don't have the actual numbers in front of me, but very, very minimal people have actually died from firefighting operations. We die of heart attacks. We die of strokes. We die of a lot of different things. Very few people, and I, I can't think of, I can hardly think of anybody that he's mentioned that has died of search if they're, while died doing a VES, uh, whether alone or oriented or whatever, or what have you. Very, very, very few people, very few, we're talking like in the tens, have died doing actual firefighting operations. I mean, shoot, we're getting shot at. We're more likely to die on a domestic EMS call than we are at a fire these days. Um, you know, firefighters are still dying and I'm not saying our job isn't dangerous. Our job is dangerous. I detailed that all, all throughout the beginning of the podcast. Our job is dangerous. And I think that we do a disservice to a lot of things when we downplay the danger that we do. When we downplay the danger. But reality, reality is that we're not dying in fires. We're dying of other things. It's still dangerous. It's still, there is a dangerous portion to what we do, but and, and I don't think we should downplay that at all. In fact, I think we should tell that to people that, hey, what we do is dangerous. This is a dangerous job. You know, you could come in here, you could die today, like when you come to work. And you should be right with your family and you should be right with whatever you believe in, you know, not necessarily religion or whatever it is you believe. You should be right with that every day when you walk in the door. We have a dangerous job, but we're not dying in fire buildings. We're not dying uh, under these search conditions. We're not dying doing VES. We're not dying making the hallway. We're dying not pushing away from the table. We're dying because we don't want to get out in PT. That's what we're dying of. So when I hear all this safety violation stuff, it does make me sit and pause uh, for a minute and, and really think of the reality of what it is we're doing. Um, and so that's Skip Coleman's piece with a little bit of my commentary uh, brought into it. And I want to bring back the James Braidwood book. And he has a chapter uh, in his book called, uh, or a chapter in his piece that he wrote called The Means of Escape from Fire. I'm going to read a couple pieces of it because I think, I think his take, something from the 1830s, will really kind of bring us uh, kind of a little bit back to reality, right? Like 
it's a very, James Braywood was a very practical thinker. He was a very realistic thinker. Okay, he was a very realistic thinker. Now, granted, things in the 1830s were a little bit different. The building construction, especially where he was at, was a little bit different. Uh, you know, the fire brigades, there weren't a lot of fully trained fire brigades, right? Like, that, that, that wasn't a thing. There was just, you know, and he was trying to change that. He was trying to change some of that. But his, his, his take is, more real, is a more realistic take, and I think it'll bring us back to reality a little bit. So, means of escape from fire. As to the matter of assisting the inhabitants to escape from a house on fire, I do not pretend to say much from experience, as the business has seldom come in my way. When the lower floors of a house are on fire and the stairs or other ordinary means of retreat destroyed, the simplest and easiest mode of removing the inhabitants from the upper floors is by a ladder placed against the wall. In order to be able at all times to carry this plan into effect, the person having charge of the engines should inform himself where long ladders are to be had and how they can most easily be removed. You can't get much more simple than that. Throw a ladder to those people so they can get out or that we can go up and grab them. And you should know where your ladders are. We were just having this discussion yesterday while I was on shift of, hey, there's only two 35-foot ladders in the entire Eastern Battalion. One's on one of the tankers and one's on the ladder truck. So if you need a 35-foot ladder, that's where they're coming from. And we have three-story homes out there. So you've got to know where your ladders are. If you need a long ladder, you've got to know where they're at. It's, uh, it's pretty simple, right? Like this Again, I like how Braidwood looks at some of these things because it's just so simple. We complicate things a lot today where this job, even in the 1830s, it's still very similar. Yes, there's different things that have gone on. Again, we, we should know our history, but sometimes we need to bring ourselves back to some of that simplistic level thinking to be able to do our job. Use a little more common sense. He goes on to say, but if a ladder of, significant, of sufficient length is not to be procured, or is at too great a distance to render it safe to wait for it, recourse must immediately be had to other means. So again, what he's saying there, if you don't have a ladder, we got to go do something else. We have, to, we have to go provide these people another means of escape. If it happened that the windows above are all inaccessible on account of the flames bursting through those below, the firemen should immediately get on the roof by means of the adjoining houses, and descend by the hatch. The hatch, however, being sometimes directly above the stair, is in that case very soon affected by fire and smoke. If on approaching, it is found to be so much so as to render an entrance in that way impracticable, the firemen should instantly break through the roof and descend into the upper floors, extricate those within. So what he's saying is, hey, if you can't get into the window or for whatever reason there's too much fire in the window, go to the roof and enter through the hatch on the roof. And if the hatch on the roof is not safe because it's above the stairs, break through the roof and enter into a room and get the people out that way. That sounds a lot to me like VES. I don't know what it sounds like to you, but to me, that's VES. And we're talking about it in the 1830s. We're talking about VES in the 1830s and putting ourselves at risk to save people trapped inside a fire building in the 1830s with no PPE, very little formal fire training. I mean, just, you know, the, not the flow rates that we have today, not the nozzles, not all the stuff that we have backing us. We're talking about breaking through a roof, entering a smoky building or a building on fire, and rescuing the people from there. Again, pretty simple stuff by James Braidwood. Um, again, I'm not advocating doing that today because the construction types are different. But again, he's talking about VES. He's talking about it in 1830. If it should happen, however, back to the book here, if it should happen, however, that the persons in danger are not in the upper floor and cannot reach it in consequence of the stair being on fire, 
the firemen should continue breaking through floor after floor until they reach them. In so desperate a case as this, the shorter process may probably be to break through the party wall between the house on fire and that adjoining when there is one. And when there is no house immediately contiguous through the gable, taking care in either case to break through at the back of the closet, press, chimney, or other recess where the wall is thinnest. I mean, again, he's talking about VES. So what he's telling these people is that if they're not on the top floor, we'll just go ahead and break through the next floor. Go ahead and break through the next floor so you can get them. And if they're not there, break through the one below that. Or if, they, if, you, if you don't think they can make the top floor, go to the house next door, break through the wall, and get them out that way. These are all things that we, we kind of do today, especially townhomes and, and apartment buildings. We've, we've had documented cases where people breach walls to grab people. And he's talking about this in 1830s. Again, he's talking about risking all of this in 1830. With nowhere near the level of protection that we have today. So again, that makes me pause when people talk about things being safe versus unsafe. And I'm not saying that things, there is not a line there between things being safe and unsafe. But we took the job. You know, I talked about this before. Risk is our business. I'm not saying that we should have suicide missions. I'm saying that we should assess the risk and make the right call. Assess the risk and then take it, mitigate that risk down to as manageable as we can. And going through all those steps I've talked about before. And then take the risk. Or if we can't, we can't. And that's, a, and that's fine. If it, if it doesn't pass the eye test, well, that is what it is. If fire's blowing out of every window, we've got to put water on it first. But then guess what after we do? After we put the water on it first, guess what we're going to do? We're going to go in there. We're going to search. We're going to take that risk. It's still risky. It's still risky. Going back to the book here, uh, he talks about a little bit too that if an opening made from the adjoining house should be, it should be immediately after having served the purpose for which it is made, be built up with brick or stone to prevent the fire spreading. So like they want to break that wall, get the pre and then put the bricks back. Um, he talks about having these operations done by slaters, masons, or house carpenters who being better acquainted with such work are likely to execute it in a shorter time than others. Man, that, that's again, having people know building construction, having people do all that stuff and having the right people do the right job. Having the right people do the right job. Um, and that's, you know, he talks about uh, this last little piece here. It, it talks about like this is, the, this is like the last resort for, for what uh, James Braywood would talk about for searching a building. Uh, and this actually, he talks about, it comes from a Parisian fireman. And uh, he, he goes to, the, to say in the book here, in that case, uh, sorry, it is not... Im- it is not impossible, however, that circumstances may occur to render all or either of these plans mentioned above impractical. In that case, one or two of the lower windows must be darkened, fire, put fire, you know, put water on the fire, and by this means access gained to the upper floors. The plan recommended by Parisian firemen is for a man to wrap himself up in a wet blanket and thus pass swiftly through the flames. But this effort is only to be attempted when the flames from a single door are to be passed. In any other case, the stair will most likely be in flames and impassable. So they're even talking like, I mean, that was their PPE back in the 1830s. Like, look, okay, they're going to do, I mean... Windows darkened, like that's transitional attack, right? Or that's hitting it from the outside, whatever you want to call it. We're not getting wrapped around the actual terminology. Uh, But that's transitional attack. So they were talking about that in 1830. Still a viable option. Was a viable option then, viable option now. We can't make the the room, we can't make the house, put water on the fire, go in there, do our job. Their PPE was soaking a guy in a wet blanket. But even then, they knew that 
even then they knew, and we should know today too, that even, you know, obviously that wet blanket doesn't have a lot of, even soaked in water, doesn't have a lot of flame retardant. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of ability to keep you from getting burned. Even our PPE has limits. They knew that only one room could be passed if that was to happen. One room with the wet blanket trick. Well, we know that we can go further than one room, but even our PPE has limits. It cannot survive flashover. It cannot survive these things. So we even know that once we take that risk, there is still a point of no return where we have to make like, hey, we can make this room or not this or but not this room. And that has to be part of our training as well. We have to read buildings. We have to read smoke. We have to read fire. And so that is some some thoughts from James Braidwood. And again, I got that out of a classic reprint series. If you're interested um, in getting this or any other book, you can go to ForgottenBooks.com, www.ForgottenBooks.com, and you can put it in the search engine, and James Braidwood will come up, and you can get the exact same book, and you can read all of his other thoughts. He's got some interesting thoughts on a lot of the fire service, and he was doing some things that people are complaining about uh, that I want to get into with another episode uh, and we'll we'll revisit this book again. But he's doing some things in the 1830s that would blow your mind. And he he was pretty much a revolutionary thinker. But that's kind of how I feel about the whole VES thing. And I kind of feel like I've gone soup to nuts uh, with it. And those are some different thoughts uh, from some pretty experienced and some iconic firemen in our business. With all that being said... With all that being said, with all the opinions that have been given, all the stuff that has been talked about in these two books, uh, which were Searching Smarter by Skip Coleman and The Training of Firemen and the Method of Proceeding in Cases of Fire by James Braidwood, all of those things talked about how to rescue people, V-E-S, O-V-E-I-S, V-E-I, all those things. At the end of the day, folks, take what works in your fire department and make it work. If you're showing up with a two-person engine crew, then do what works for you, okay? Do what works for you. I've had the discussion with some rural firefighters that are doing VES, okay? But they're adding an even different twist on it. Since they've only got two people and they know there's a known rescue, what they're doing is, all right, someone is possibly in that window, They stretch a line and a ladder, they charge the line, they vent the window, they flow water into the room, preconditioning the room, put the line down, climb the ladder, isolate the door, search the room, come back out. And they take that from Euro firefighting. Euro firefighting talks a lot about preconditioning the environment. Before Euro firefighters go into a room that's on fire, if they've got the door closed, they'll spray water around the door frame and maybe the wall, maybe even the sofa behind them so that that room is what they call preconditioned. So that it's less likely to catch fire and off gas. Then they'll open the fire room and make the fire room. Well, that, some people are adapting that style to doing VES with two, three people and then they know they're the only ones coming. Again, you may not agree with that, but I think that's a great thinking and a great point to be brought up is that make it work for your department. They still want to be able to save people. If they pull up to a fire and they say, my daughter's in that room, they know they've only got two people. So they're doing the best with the two people that they have. They take the ladder, vent the window, take the line, spray water in that room. Precondition the environment, try to kill the flashover potential. Climb the ladder, isolate the door, rescue the person, or you know, search the room, rescue the person. I think that's great. Because at the end of the day, if we burn... The, people, people's possessions are important. But if we burn the building down but save all the people, I still think we win. And, and it's going to take a, a hard thing to convince me that we don't. It's going to take a hard, hard argument to convince me that we don't. So again, that's just something to think about, folks. It's just something to think about. So make what you're doing in your department work for you. If you want to call it O-V-E-I-S, you want to call it V-E-I-S, you want to call it V-E-S, make sure everybody knows what it means in your department. Make sure you train on it and make sure that the outcome is what you're looking for. 
because at the end of the day, that's what we're talking about. You can take all this information and you can read it, you can absorb it, and I think you should. I think you should take the information that's out there from Brothers in Battle, the information that's out there from RescueSurvey.com, the information that's out there from Bill Carey, the information that's out there from James Braidwood, uh, Skip Coleman, all these guys, and make and then plug your fire department into it and see what spits out the other end. One of my mentors always talked about uh, a hay baler. And you know, there's usually two kinds of hay bales, square bales and round bales. And what he would always say is don't try to make a square bale with a round baler. And what that means is we're, we can't try to be this other fire department and we don't have the tools and equipment to do it. I can't make a, a square bale come out of a round baler. It's not going to work no matter how much I want it to. And conversely, the same way, if all I've got is a square baler, then I've got to make the damn best square hay bales that I can make. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the equipment and the people that I have, and I'm going to make the best that I can do for the people in my area. And I'm going to research it, and if it needs to be adjusted, I'll adjust it based on the information or new information. So at the end of the day, folks, that's what it's all about. Train on it. Make sure your people know what it is. Take all the information that I've shared today, the information that's out there. Go take classes, watch YouTube, all of those things. Plug all of your information into it, your people, your staffing, your apparatus, your fire department, your buildings, your nozzles, your hose, your ladders, and see what comes out at the end of that hay baler. If it's a square bale, then make it the best damn square bale you can. Period. Stay tuned. I've got a couple things to clean up on the back end of the podcast. Stay tuned for the end of that in just a minute. Hey, everybody, just real quick on the back end of the podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Again, uh, you know, this is some stuff that I really feel is a unique perspective and it just is, is the other side of the coin. And that, that's kind of like how I do this stuff. And I really hope you guys enjoy the content. I hope you've enjoyed the engine search content. I hope you've enjoyed, uh, you know, everything that's out there. Uh, I, I really appreciate everyone that takes the time to listen to, to what I have to say, to all the things that, you know, that are going on out there. Cause it's a lot, you have a lot of choices, uh, when you listen to fire service podcasts, and when you read and so on and so forth. And so I really, really, really appreciate everybody who is, uh, who's out there listening. Uh, really quick, just wanted to detail, I've uh, got some stuff coming up in the, in, you know, I always like to tell everybody where I'm going to be so that if you want to, you know, meet up with me, have a conversation or come hear me speak, uh, I like to tell everybody where I'm going to be. Uh, I will be in uh, in August. A lot of stuff going on in August. Uh, you know, going, getting ready to uh, hit uh, vacation season here in Virginia. I've got uh, not a whole lot in the month of June, July. I'm going to be in California at Disneyland uh, for about eight or nine, ten days. So uh, podcast may be a little bit limited, uh, but big things coming in August. Uh, humbled to be able to get to teach at this year's First Responder Virginia Conference. Uh, this is a joint effort this year between the Virginia State Firefighters Association and the uh, Virginia Association of Volunteer Rescue Squads and the Virginia Department of Fire Programs. This is uh, Last year it was called this the Virginia State Firefighters Expo. This year they're kind of combining the conference a little bit, and I'm going to get to present for the very first time ever my class on engine search. So uh, I think it's going to be a really, really great thing. We're going to, again, and it's going to be some practical stuff, right? But we're going to talk about that, that engine search stuff. We're going to talk about all the things that, that involve it. And we're going to talk about real life stuff. We're not just, you know, and again, I, uh, I know I tweeted the other day about story time, but the stories that I'm going to tell in my, in my class are stuff that has happened to me and why I ended up developing these methods and why I use these methods and why they work for me. And hopefully you can take something from that and make it yours. Uh, so I'm going to be teaching there on, uh, sorry, I'm pulling it up right now. I should have done that before I started recording. Uh, I'm going to be teaching that engine search class. I believe it's going to be Thursday and Friday. Um, I've got to talk to the, uh, I've got to talk to the people who are running the conference because I've got a little bit of a scheduling conflict uh, with one of the classes, with one of the times they gave me. 
So uh, hopefully we'll be... Yep, so Engine and Search Thursday in Hampton, Virginia at the uh, Virginia First Responder Conference 2019. Thursday, 1 o'clock to 4.30, and then Friday, 8 to noon. Um, again, uh, that's good. I don't know the room number yet or anything, but those are the days I'm going to be teaching it. So if you're interested and you want to come to Virginia to hear me talk about engine company search, uh, it's not just going to be your standard PowerPoint presentation class. Uh, I'm not, I don't want to give you all the details yet, but it's going to be a little bit more than that. Uh, so we're going to talk about a lot of things, some realistic things and some things that are facing the fire service today. Uh, lastly, before I let you go, Super, super excited to be heading back to Pensacola, Florida, the beautiful Pensacola Beach, uh, to attend this year's Water on the Fire Conference brought to you by Kurt Isaacson and his team at County Fire Tactics. Uh, if you've been listening or following along on the podcast or following me on Twitter or on Instagram, you know that I got to go to the Officer Development Program this year in January, uh, again, hosted by Kurt Isaacson and County Fire Tactics. Uh, there was a week of stuff with John Norman going through his company officer book and going through his uh, special operations book. Super great experience. One of the best uh, conferences I've ever been to. And when he talked about the other conferences he was offering, that one, that water on the fire one really piqued my interest. And I, I didn't think I'd be able to make it happen this year. Um, but uh, mate was able to move some stuff around, was able to, to move, you know, do, get the money, uh, put aside and am able to go. And I'm so stoked. I'm going to be going with my good friend, Daniel Myers. If you remember, Daniel has, uh, gone to a lot of Kurt Isaacson's conferences. He even reviewed the, uh, he even reviewed the command officer boot camp that he went to in 2018, uh, on the podcast, I believe it's like episode five. Uh, so he talked about his review of that. Super excited. He went with me to the uh, officer uh, officer development program. He's coming back with me to Water on the Fire. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be a great experience. I cannot wait to get back down to Pensacola, Florida, and learn even more from guys like Brian Brush, Dennis Laguerre, uh, Ray McCormack, Kurt Isaacson. Uh, one of the classes I'm super excited to take and it's a class I've been trying to get into forever is uh, the canned confidence class brought uh, by the guys from Venon or Search. I believe it's Eric Wheaton. Uh, man, I am so excited to take that class. I know it's not going to be the the full hands-on deal, but I'm really, really, really interested in taking that class. Um, and then just flowing water with all the guys from Elkhart Brass and flowing water and learning, just continuing to up the engine company game and just the fire service knowledge in general. And it being August in Pensacola, Florida, it's going to be gorgeous. Uh, been traveling to Pensacola my entire life. That's where my mom's family is from. My grandparents uh, retired there and lived there and they're buried there. So I've been going to that part of Florida my entire life. It's gorgeous. It's great. The Gulf of Mexico is awesome. So just really, really super excited to get to go to that. If you're interested in any of those conferences, uh, go to countyfiretactics.com. Kurt Isaacson is putting on some of the best conferences in the country uh, with the best instructors in the country. So you're doing yourself a disservice if you do. He puts on five conferences a year, and you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not going to them uh, or at least looking at them. Uh, and lastly, still waiting to hear on Firehouse Expo. I'm hoping that they pick up my class uh, for uh, this year's conference uh, in October. If that changes, I'll let you guys know through social media. Of course, always follow me uh, at AverageJakeFF on Twitter. Same thing on Instagram. I'm also on LinkedIn at Robert Owens. And as always, make sure you're spending one hour every day in the gym working on your physical fitness. One hour every day in the library reading something, reading a magazine, watching a YouTube video, increasing your fire service education. And one hour every day doing some sort of hands-on training, putting your hands on the hose, flowing water, throwing ladders, tying knots, mask drills, whatever. You do that, you become a pretty phenomenal firefighter. I guarantee it. So thanks for listening. Stay safe but aggressive. I'm out.